I'm in Mark chapter 14, 15, 16. I may have scared you off earlier by mentioning that we're going to be talking from those three chapters, but I'm going to just select a few verses out of each one of those chapters as we continue in our study through the Gospel of Mark. We, are, uh, we have already sent you emails, so you have the notes. And what I wanted to do is just highlight and talk about one of the characters in the Gospel of Mark. It got me to thinking that here in our current society, we are doing a lot of reruns on TV. I did a little bit of research and was wondering, what are the most popular reruns that are on TV at this time? Basically, I've done some research and found out that some of those most popular are determined by how many TV stations across the nations buy certain programs that they can rerun on a regular basis. So, why don't you just think about it for a few seconds and ask yourself this question. What are probably the most popular reruns that are being shown in America on any given day? Now, some of those might be ones listed here. Some of them may not be. Do you have an idea? Here we go. Let's just talk about the most popular, and I'm going to talk about the the five most popular programs that are being rerun on a regular basis by many stations. Number one, CSI from 2000-2015, number six that is. Then there's Friends, which was on for a number of years. Then there is the Law and Order series that's being replayed. And then there's The Simpsons, its old program as well as modern program. Number two was Seinfeld. And the number one rebroadcasted comedy that's put across American airwaves comes from a long time ago. It's I Love Lucy. We, you know, we've been in a, in, a, in a spot right now that you've probably been watching a lot of films over and over and over. And maybe you're doing that on a regular basis, but especially during this COVID time. And you have your, your favorite film or your favorite song that you listen to. I got to tell you, with uh, True Confessions, I have a handful of favorite sermons. And one of those that is my most favorite fits right from this passage that we're talking about in the life of Jesus Christ. And some of you have heard it enough that you can preach it, but I wanted still to rehearse it for some who haven't heard it before or for those of us who have just to be rechallenged once again. It's on the life of Peter, the Apostle Peter in his story of what happens to him during the last few days of Jesus' life and then after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we look at his life, we have to back up and admit something about the Apostle Peter. He is an outstanding character. Now think about this for a moment. That in Peter's life, if you think about him as an influence in the early church or as an impact to them, he's one of the very first converts of Jesus Christ. We know that as well that he willingly left behind his entire livelihood so that he could follow the Lord, giving up his business and, and going about following him for a period of months. We know that he was one of the chosen 12, that Jesus picked him, not only to be one of the 12, but also to be one of the closest of the 12. In fact, he is the individual that appears with Jesus Christ on several occasions to be the one, the one of the three that goes with Jesus. And in every listing of the Gospels where we find the apostles listed, he is always listed as number one. We know that as well during the ministry that he had, that he went about and did miracles. He was one of those, according to Mark chapter 6, that went out, preached, and then came back, and he had the powers to cast out demons and to do miracles. It is Peter that makes that great confession of faith that he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. When Jesus was asking, Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter speaks out, and Jesus commends him for speaking up such truth and with such boldness. He is the only one besides Jesus in all of history that walked on water. The other, the other 12, the 11, they stayed in the boat. They were fearful. Peter was fearful but got out of the boat. And as a result, he walks on water. He is one of those who had that fabulous training. And I really appreciate the college and seminary training I had. But can you imagine sitting at the feet of Jesus for several years and being trained? I, I don't think there's any exaggeration. When we say that Peter was one of those faithful followers of Jesus Christ, that he was an individual that was very, very determined to serve the Lord and loved Jesus Christ. That's why his story and what happens to him in the last few days that Christ 
was on earth and before and then right after he ascended into heaven, Peter provides us some challenging, encouraging, as well as challenging lessons that can serve as a benefit to you and me as we look at what happened to Peter, where he was, where he went, and where he ends up. And so I want to make three basic statements as we reflect on the life of Peter this morning. I want you to realize that according to the Word of God, that there is this lesson portrayed by Peter's life that, number one, faithful believers can fall. Faithful believers can fall. That's Peter's experience. That's what happened to him. For all of his training, for all of his, his bravado, for all of his willingness and his sacrifices that he made for Jesus Christ, Peter fell. And we all know where he ended up. We all know that he fell and flat on his face when he denies the Lord three times. And he's probably most remembered for that facet, that factor in his, in his latter days of the Christ life. And yet we got to remember that it, it didn't happen all of a sudden. There, it was built up. Things were that Peter did in the hours before that led up to his denial. And it could happen to us that we would fall flat in our service for the Lord if we don't look at Peter's life and heed the warnings that happened to Peter. All those things that led up to his fall. There are multiple situations that we could give you as illustrations. Like the time that back in 1982, two pilots coming into Los Angeles airport, they reported that they saw a UFO up in that altitudes that shouldn't be there as they approached the airport. They reported that there was a man sitting in a lawn chair with a pellet gun and he was up there being held up by balloons. Now that would be a strange thing, but it didn't happen all of a sudden. There was a planning and there was things that took place for years ahead of this singular instance. The true story is of a gentleman by the name of Larry Walters who always wanted to be able to fly. In fact, he joined the military, served in Vietnam with the idea that he would become a pilot, but his poor eyesight prevented him from ever getting that opportunity. He wanted to learn to be a, a pilot even afterwards, but again, he had that problem with his eyesight, ended up as a trucker, but always in the back of his mind, one day I'm going to go flying, one day I'm going to go flying. And then he got the idea that maybe he could do it on his own. Maybe he could get some balloons, some of those that he could buy at an army surplus that were used as old weather balloons that were now on sale. So he, for a period of a few years, he started collecting and buying these balloons, several thousand dollars worth of them. And his plan was to get these balloons together, and I believe there was 35 or 42 of them that he would inflate. He had to go out and buy all the different the different tanks so he could inflate. And again, that took a period of time in planning. And then what he did is he got his lawn chair that he ordered through J.C. Penney, and he put a number of gallons of water on there to serve as the ballast. And then he tied the balloons, inflated them. He had two strong ropes that were to anchor him down so he could just float up and come back down. Well, what happened is that day came, he got his lunch, he got his walkie-talkie, he got his, his BB gun, he got his, uh, his warm clothes on, and he was ready to go flying, and he released that one rope that was his anchor. When he released the one, the pressure of, from the balloons was so strong, it snapped the other rope. And he started going up at a much quicker uh, ascent than what he had ever planned. It shook him up physically as well as emotionally. His glasses fell off. He dropped some of his lunch. And now he was petrified and not even wanting to move as he shot up into the air. He shot up into that thousands of feet high. And there he was now floating up there. And his plan was that when he went up, he would be blown into the desert region where he had friends waiting. But it didn't work out that way. The weather, as he got up, the winds changed and started him blowing the opposite direction over the L.A. area and not only above that region, but into the path of the, of the uh, airport where planes now, all of a sudden, he was in the wrong air patterns. That's why the pilots reported him. The police ended up coming. They tried to help get him down by bringing chopters in and blowing it down. But eventually, he was able to shoot a couple of the balloons. And once he shot them, he was so nervous because the, the balloons, everything started shaking. He dropped his gun, and now he just had to wait. 
About another hour later, he started to descend. And as he was descending, now the fear was that he was going to descend into an area that was residential. And there's all kinds of power lines. He's going to get fried. He was worried. He's talking to the police. The police are talking to him. And so what the police ended up doing is they shut down a 20-block area of the city of all the power so that he could come down. And sure enough, he did get hung up in the lines. After it was all done and he became a folk hero, he was arrested and he was fined $4,000. They told him if he had a pilot's license, he would never fly again. But that was a mute point. But Larry Walters had planned this all for, for years and then actually for weeks and weeks and weeks. So his up and down, coming back down, it wasn't just on the spur of the moment. It was something that took a period of time. Now, just in case some of you are sitting at home and getting the idea that maybe I could do that with some other type of balloons, let me give you a warning. 2008, there was a priest down in Brazil that he decided that he would use just huge party balloons, get them inflated, and hopefully they would lift him up and he could take a 450-mile journey from one city in Brazil to another city so that he could use it as a fundraiser, like a -a fly-a-thon. Well, he planned on it, got himself all set in the right garb and got the balloons going, and he took with him a GPS. He took his walkie-talkie. But the one thing he didn't do is he didn't check the weather forecast. And so once he started his flight, all of a sudden bad weather had come in. And instead of blowing in the direction that he wanted to do, all of a sudden he was being blown towards the ocean. His GPS would have helped out in getting a rescue, but he didn't know how to operate it. And so there he was with the right equipment, but he didn't, t- he didn't take advantage of it. And the last he was ever heard of was he was now going out into the ocean and uh, trying to call for help, but help didn't know where he was. He ended up crashing, never to be heard from. They did find the balloons out into the ocean a few miles. So be careful. Be careful if you have the idea you want to do something like flying on your own. Both of those stories illustrate to us that even good intentions may all of a sudden backfire if we're not careful, if we don't, if, if we don't take warnings properly. Well, Peter was one of those who he ended up falling flat on his face. Even though he was faithful, he ended up falling because of several things that happened in his life. L- let me point out some of the steps that he took that led to his, his denial. First of all, we would note this that Peter came to a point in his life that he thought he was the exception to the rule. That he thought that what Jesus had warned him about, it would never happen to him. Do you remember that? We read about it in Mark chapter 14, where we read the words of Peter, starting with his conversation with Jesus. When they had sung a hymn, verse 26 of Mark 14, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Jesus said unto them, All you shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. Jesus said unto him, Verily, truly, I say unto you, that this day, even this night, before the cock crows twice, you shall deny me three times. But Peter spoke more vehemently. If I should die with you, I will never deny you in any wise. Likewise, also they they all said. So here he is, hearing that Jesus predicted by quoting scripture that the twelve would deny and all the others would do it. But Peter, in his mind, felt he was the exception. He said that, that he would never do it. He was absolutely convinced, so he wasn't careful. Do you, do you run into people that at this time, at this moment, they think they're the exception? At this moment when it's warnings that we should be careful to wear a mask when we go into stores and things, but they're insistent, they must be the exception. Some are being, we're being warned, don't gather, be careful, stay at home. But some believe they're the exception, that they can still get together all they want with whoever they want. You know, that be that idea of being the exception. All of a sudden, sometimes it it all of a sudden flows over into the area of our spiritual walk with the Lord. That some of those folk would think I'm the exception when it comes to Christ's warnings of 
being careful about the besetting sin. Christ's warnings about getting angry and getting better, uh, bitter at somebody. Christ's warnings about working at the marriage, lest all of a sudden things get worse. Or Christ's warnings to parents about raising the kids. And some folks say, ah, no, we're the exception. Our kids will be okay, even though we don't have to, we don't invest in their spiritual growth the way that we know we should. Our kids will be okay. We're the exception. Beware. Once you start thinking you're the exception, you are on that downhill slide to getting yourselves into some serious problems. Something else that Peter did. Another mistake that he made is he didn't give himself fully to prayer the way that he was told to. Well, again, we're in Mark chapter 14. We read the passage where Jesus Christ resorts to the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 32. And they came to the place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, Sit ye here while I pray. He takes with them Peter, James, John, began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. They say, and he said unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. You tarry here and watch. Idea of pray. And he went forward a little, fell on the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour may pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, All these things are possible unto you. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. He comes and finds them sleeping. Says unto Peter, and now he calls him Simon, not Peter. Simon, you sleep? Couldn't you watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, (coughs) excuse me, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away, prayed, spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, neither (coughs) did they know what to answer him. And then he says, sleep on. Here, Here they are. They're asked to pray. Jesus encouraged them to pray. They, 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 you know, agreed to go with Jesus Christ. And then Jesus Christ walks away, comes back, warns them, tells them, goes away, and they sleep on instead of praying. Have you ever come to the point where you know you should pray, but you fall asleep? I've done it more often than I can remember. But that doesn't excuse us from from all of a sudden saying we shouldn't give other times to prayer. And and yes, we, we may falter at moments, but we still need to take the heed, the warning of Jesus Christ to give ourselves to pray. Do you do it? Or do you say, you know what, I'm the exception to the rule. I don't need to pray like others need to pray. It's good that we have prayer times at church. It's good that we have uh, prayer moments that we gather. It's good that we have the prayer list, but, you know, that's not for me. If you are an individual who think you're an exception, you think that you don't need to pray, you are setting yourself up for hitting some, some, some tragedy, some spiritual disaster. You know, don't make those same mistakes Peter made. You need to be praying. You and I need to stop thinking we're the exception. He made a third mistake. Third mistake was this, is he started to serve God in the flesh. Those who serve God in the flesh will run into disaster. Well, Peter did it. Peter had fallen asleep. When he wakes up, Jesus says, the guards are here. Peter is agitated. Peter is moved. He is emboldened to do something for Jesus. He knows that he loves the Lord. He doesn't want Jesus to be arrested. But he doesn't understand. He hasn't heard the prayer of Jesus fully. He hasn't listened to the words of Jesus fully. He, He argued with Jesus in the past when Jesus said he has to go and die. And now Peter, when all of a sudden the moment comes for Jesus to be arrested... Peter foolishly attacks one of those individuals. We read about it all in Mark 14. Jump down to verse 43. Immediately while he spake comes Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And he that betrayed him had given them a sign or a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he, take him and lead him away safely." And as soon as he was come, he goes straightway to, the, to Jesus and said, Master, Master, and kissed him. And they laid their hands on Jesus and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword. Now Matthew 26 makes it clear it's Peter. And smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. 
And Jesus answered and said unto them, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not. But the scriptures might be fulfilled, and then all of his disciples forsake him. But we, we know from the other account, Peter had bravado. Peter had boldness. Peter had anger towards the soldiers. Peter had this zeal that he wanted to protect Jesus Christ. And as a result, he slices off Malchus's ear. Jesus rebukes him. And even though it may look good on the outside and it looks like he had such fervor, it wasn't in the will of God. But Peter made the mistake by operating in the flesh. He hadn't prepared by, by praying and having the Spirit lead him. He hadn't prepared by, by listening to the words of Christ. And even what words of Christ were given to him, he thought he was the exception. So as a result of thinking he's the exception, as a result of not spending time in prayer, he comes to the point where he's serving God in the flesh. Have you ever done that? Have you ever all of a sudden done something that is supposedly good, but you did it in the flesh? How does that work out? How does it work out when you discipline your kids in the flesh instead of in the spirit? How does it work out when you all of a sudden you let somebody that's angered you, you're going to correct them, but you correct them not in the spirit, not with meekness, not controlled by, by God's guidance, but rather in the flesh, you let them have it. How does that work out? How, do, how, do, how does that foster better relationships? How does it work out to teach in the flesh? Some of us who preach, oh, it is easy to all of a sudden get angry, to get upset, and to preach in the flesh. How does God honor that? Well, Peter had this great, what some would consider zeal, but in reality, it was operating in the flesh because it wasn't bathed in prayer. It wasn't following the word of God. He thought he was the exception, and it only gets worse for him. Not only does he think he's, a, he's the exception, not only doesn't he pray, not only does he operate in the flesh, but he made another mistake. And that is he stubbornly followed his own will. He stubbornly followed his own will. That makes perfect sense. That, we would do, that this would be the next domino to fall in our walk with the Lord. What happens to him is he all of a sudden ends up doing not what Christ told him to do, but doing what he wanted to do. Do you remember what happened? Jesus, and we read it already, Jesus said, you're going to scatter. And then after Jesus said, you're going to scatter, he said, I will meet you in Galilee. Now this is before they get to Gethsemane. And so Jesus has already told them, you're going to scatter. Jesus said, after you scatter, I'll meet you in Galilee. But what we read about Peter in Mark chapter 14, let's pick up in verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. And Peter followed him afar off, even unto the palace of the high priest. And not only does he follow there, but notice the next phrase. He sat himself with the servants and warmed himself by the fire. Oh yeah, let's, let's, uh, let, let's give Peter a little bit of credit here that some want to give. That Peter had great boldness. That he would even enter into an enemy's courtyard. That he was there because he loved the Lord. Um, yeah, yeah there's, there's boldness there. But it's not what he was warned. Not what he was told was, was the pattern of what Christ wanted him to do. Christ said, you'll scatter after that, meet me in Galilee. But Peter is here, he's in a spot where he sits down. These people may have been part of the crowd. He's putting himself in serious danger after Jesus had pled with the soldiers to let his followers go. And then he ends up being there, despite warnings and directives, putting himself in a bad place. It's a bad spot that some people get themselves into because they argue with the Lord. They think they're the exception. They don't pray on a regular basis. They're an individual that operates by more by emotion and by feelings than by faith and the guidance of the Word of God. Then they end up putting themselves in bad places. Then it leads to the obvious that what happens to Peter is the ultimate. He fails to declare his loyalty to Christ. We read about that in Mark 14. We pick up in what happened to him, starting in verse 66. And Peter was beneath in the palace, 
and there comes one of the maids to the high, of the high priest. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked to him and said, and, uh, and you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied, saying, I know not, neither understand I what you say. He went out into the porch, the cock crew. A maid saw him again and began to say that stood by, this is one of them. He denied it again. And a little after, they said to him, Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean, and thy speech agrees thereto. He had that twang of, of a northerner. And he, but he began to curse and to swear, saying, I don't know this man of whom you speak. And the second time the cock crew, and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said, Before the cock crowed twice, you shall deny me three times. And he, when he thought thereon, he wept. <laughs> it's interesting. This denial was made easy. Some of the comments that are made by some of those people are basically saying, you aren't one of them, are you? They made it very easy for him in, in part of his denial to be able to say, no, I don't know him. No, I don't know him. Easy or not, he denies the Lord. He didn't intend to. He promised he wouldn't, but he did. He did. Why? He thought he was an exception. Why? He didn't bathe in prayer. Why? Because he was operating in the flesh. Why? He's an individual who was determined to do what he wanted to do, not what the Lord told him to do. And as a result, he got himself into serious problems. Can I ask you some personal questions? Do you ever deny the Lord by your silence? When you have opportunity to speak up, have you ever denied him by just remaining quiet? Have you ever denied the Lord when you're in a crowd and in conversation and they're criticizing the Bible? They're criticizing Christians. They're criticizing believers. Do you ever join in so as to be accepted and make some negative comments about the Word of God, about Christianity? Are you an individual? Have you ever denied the Lord by doing something that you knew was wrong to do? But you wanted the crowd not to be upset with you. So you decided that even though I know it's wrong to curse, even though I know it's wrong to, to do the, the drinking, the drunkenness, even though I know it's wrong to be involved in dirty jokes, I'm going to do it because I want to fit in. H have you ever denied the Lord by refusing to worship Him? By refusing to obey Him? The Lord said you should be baptized. You know that. But you say, no, I'm the exception. No, I'm going to do what I want to do. Isn't that a form of denying the Lord? The Lordship of your life? Have you ever denied the Lord before family members? When family members have asked you about serving, about giving, about, about church and worship, and you say, no, that's not important. I, 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 I'm, I'm the exception. I don't need to be able to give. I don't need to witness. I don't need to be one who gets under the preaching of the Word of God regularly. This denying the Lord can happen very simply by somebody making a declaration of, I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. I grew up in the church and I've heard the Word of God, but I'm going to stop following Jesus Christ. It can happen even to faithful believers. It can happen to those who followed the Lord, who loved the Lord, and all of a sudden, after time goes by, they determined that they can live the, their own life the way we want. We have story after story of some individuals who grew up in the ministries, who served the Lord, who went on mission trips, and at this point, they have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. How did they get there? Did it just suddenly happen? I don't think so. I know that that's not the case for some of those of our friends who are no longer following the Lord. It came over a gradual period of time where they believed that they were an exception. They believed they didn't have to pray. They believed they could operate in the flesh. They believed they could do their own thing. And they came to a point of not following the Lord. The lesson is clear. Faithful believers can fall, and that includes me and you. Oh, be, my friend, be careful. Be ever so careful that you don't follow that same pattern. But 
If you have fallen, let me give you the second lesson from Peter's life. Not only do faithful believers, can they fall, but fallen believers can be forgiven. Fallen believers can be forgiven. To me, this is the positive side of this study. The, the negative, the warning is in the first point. Here in the second point, it is an absolute encouragement to me and to my heart that if I find myself starting to slip, that I can remind myself fallen believers can be forgiven. And it was true in Peter's case. Peter's case, it's clear because our Savior, from his example, loves us enough to seek after the fallen saint. What do I mean by that? Well, we just read in Mark chapter 14, verse 72, that he denied the Lord three times. And it says at the end of verse 72, when he thought thereon, when he realized what he had done, he wept. Oh, that, that, that weeping has to be tremendous sorrow. Really strong. And, G, and Peter had those thoughts of, what did I do? How could I have done that? That had to last with him all of Friday. Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus being put in the tomb. Nothing's going on Saturday, but rather, but only huddling in the, house, in the upper room. In fear, unsure of what would happen to them. Jesus had said that evening, whatever they do to me, they're going to do to you likewise. And so Peter, along with several of the others, they huddled themselves in that upper room for a period of time. We know that from some of the Gospels. That they, were, that they were terrified. But then we come to chapter 16. And chapter 16, there's a really, really important phrase that shows up. The angel, as the ladies come to the tomb, the angel appears. And the angel, when they look in, says these words to him. Go down to verse 5. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were afraid. And he said unto them, be not afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. So they have that proof. But the angel doesn't stop there. The angel gives the ladies directives. The angel says, I want you to go and tell his disciples. Now notice the next verse. Not only does it say tell the disciples, but there is one disciple singled out of all the disciples. Who is it? That's right. The angel, a heavenly messenger, says, make sure you tell Peter. Make sure Peter knows the Lord loves him. So much that the Lord is giving a personal message to him that this isn't done. This isn't the end. In fact, I want you to flip over to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, the last chapter. And I want you to see something that happens here. In Luke 24, it is the account of the two men who are on the road to Emmaus. Jesus appears to them. They don't know who he is. They walk the entire length for, for an extended period of time. They're traveling. And Jesus is explaining to them the scriptures that were predicted of how he was to come, to be crucified, to be buried, and to rise again. And they talk about it afterwards. Their hearts did burn. They were thrilled by what this stranger was telling them. And only when they went into the house that they were going to stop at, at for the night. And when he broke the bread and gave thanks and then he vanished, did they realize it was the Lord. Immediately they head back to Jerusalem. And then they get into the upper room and it talks, it says in verse 33 of Luke 24, they rose up the same hour, returned to Jerusalem. And I want you to catch this important thought. Jesus cares enough. Oops, I want to back up there. Jesus cares enough that he wants, he, that he seeks out his disciples. It says they rose up the same hour, returned to Jerusalem, found the eleven gathered together, and them that were with them. And they said... To the eleven, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. We don't know when this took place, but Jesus on that Sunday made a special appearance to Peter. Why? He needed the reassurance. He needed the restoration. 
God says, tell him in particular, and Jesus appears to him in particular. Not only does Jesus care enough to restore the fallen believer, then he's not only is he willing to forgive, but he takes it a step further. That this fallen believer was forgiven, that Jesus went and met with him, that Jesus sought him out. But I want you to catch John chapter 21. That Jesus restored him in John 21, in following through the story. This is now in Galilee. And they, they are out fishing. And as they fish, the guy yells from the shore, did you catch anything? They respond, not yet. Throw your fish on the other side. They find out it is a miraculous catch of fish. Peter says, it's the Lord. He leaves everybody in the boat, swims to shore. Jesus has breakfast. They sit, they talk, they spend time together. And after the breakfast meal is done, we read John 21, verse 15. It says, when they had dined, Jesus says, Simon Peter... He said to him, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me more than these? And there's all kinds of questions and discussion. What are the these? My personal opinion, it is, has nothing to do with the fish. It goes back to his night when he thought he was the exception. Though everybody else shall deny you, yet I will not. He thought he was better than the others. He thought he was exceptional. And Jesus is saying, do you love me more than these others? And now he is extremely cautious. Now he knows how easy it is to fall as a believer. Now he needs forgiveness and restoration. Jesus has met with him. Jesus has talked with him. But now Jesus restores him. Where he said unto him, yea, Lord, you know that I like you an awful lot. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said, do you love me more than these? And he said, yea, Lord, I like you so very much. Feed my sheep. Verse 16. He said unto him the third time, do you really love, love me? He said, oh, Lord, you know. And he says, feed my sheep. The lesson I learned from there is that Jesus Christ entrusts Peter with a big job. Taking care of his flock. Taking care of the lambs. And God is willing to not only forgive, but in this case, to restore him to a ministry capacity. The problem is that oftentimes we keep running from the Lord. Once we fall, we just think, it's, I, I've done too great. I've denied him. I've, I've really blown it. Can he ever forgive me? The answer is yes. But we just as was talked about in the panel discussion earlier, we need to appropriate that forgiveness. We need to come and ask for it. We ought not to continue hiding our, our fall from, from the Lord. In fact, he knows it's there. It reminds me of a time we moved out to Pennsylvania the week after we got married. And we were so excited what the Lord was going to do. We had all of our possessions between the car and a little six-foot trailer, everything we owned in the world. We left from Minnesota. We brought it out here. We had it just packed to the gills. In fact, I've told you before that as we drove out of Minnesota, the car was so overpacked with our stuff that the trunk rode real close to the muffler system, burnt up all of Deb's dresses that she had that were laying inside the trunk, and so everything was scorched and scarred, and we were just so thankful it didn't start a real fire in the trunk. But we get out here, and we, were, we had an apartment plan. We had potential jobs and we had $20 in our pocket. And we were excited. We came to the apartment and my brother and his wife came over to help us to unload and welcome us to Pennsylvania. And there we were. We looked up at the apartment and the apartment, we, we weren't used to Pennsylvania homes. It was, you know, like typical Rome type thing. And this happened to be a single unit, standing unit, but it was three floors up was where our apartment was. And to get up even to the, to the main level, we had to go up one whole flight of stairs from the sidewalk. Then we were on the, the bottom of the porch. We had to go up half a flight of stairs to get on the porch. Then we went inside the, apart, the, the main hallway. We had to go up another flight of stairs and then another flight of stairs and we would get to our apartment. So we're unloading things. And again, we don't have that much, but it got tiring for my brother and I going up and down and up and down. And we decided that one of the things we were going to carry towards the end was the refrigerator. 
because we both had moved it. It was my dad and mom's fridge. We had moved it multiple times. And, and so we, we knew it was rather light. It only stood about yay high, yay big, yay big. And I had it all tied shut, and so it was safe. And so we get up, and again, we, we weren't smart enough to have any dollies or anything of that sort. So we pick up this fridge, and man, we're both commenting of how tired we are. We must have worn ourselves out. This fridge is a lot heavier than what we remember it. We lugged it up that first flight to get from the sidewalk to the, from the outdoor sidewalk up to the bottom of the porch. We had to take a break. We pick it up. We go up the steps. We had to take another break. We get in the hallway. We have to take another break. We get halfway up to a landing. We have to take another break. We get it up. And my brother is just like, what in the world is this? I don't recall this fridge being so heavy. Well, we got it in place. And only later as we were unboxing, when I uncut the, uh, the, the tape that we had put around, did I remember at that moment as I opened the door, oh, yeah, I put my entire college library inside the fridge. No wonder it was so heavy. All my books that I had, and there weren't that many, but there were enough that it filled up that fridge, they were all on the inside. I guarantee you, I never told my brother. I never let him know because of all the complaining we did that it was really my fault. There are some of you that in the same way you've made a terrible, tragic mistake spiritually, but you have determined, I'm not telling the Lord. (laughs) Unlike my brother, the Lord already knows. You need to tell him. You need to confess. You need to come clean with him and stop running from him. You need to realize that, yes, it's possible for faithful believers to fall. And when faithful believers fall, those fallen believers can be forgiven. Don't don't run from Christ, run to Christ. I was reflecting upon my days in junior high. And yes, back when I was young, they did have schools in junior high. And what happened in our community, we, we were a small town of several hundred, but there were even smaller little villages on the outskirts. And what would happen is each one of the small villages had their own grade school including this little town where I grew up in Piers and where I went to grade school. So there was my class in Piers that had 30, 35 students. But then down, down a ways by, by Buckman, there was another elementary school that had about that many students. And then up in Harding, there was another elementary school that had, and then by Lastrop, there was another elementary school. So we all went to elementary schools in our small little communities, but when we reached seventh grade, they would consolidate all those schools, uh, those little schools, into one. So we all came to that same main town, Pierce, and now the 130 of us were all in seventh grade. And so we didn't know all these others, and there was a lot of clickishness, but that would kind of dissolve in the next few days. And what they did in our school is they put us in four different major classes, And they divided them, and they called them Class A, Class B, Class C, Class D. They were representative of their grades that they typically got. So all of a sudden, this division of the classes would segregate everybody into the smart section, the not-so-smart, the in-between sections. And so we had not only different community Uh, interaction that created tension. Now we had grades that created tension. And for some reason, one of the kids in the D class who was from one of those small little outskirts schools, he decided that he didn't like me. I, I never talked to him. I didn't know anything. The way I met him was one day walking around in that first couple weeks of school, walking around the sidewalk area out front during a break or lunch, all of a sudden, somebody came up and with, with the, as hard as they could with their notebook, they hit me in the, uh, in the center of the back. And I lost my breath, fell to my knees. And here this fellow was, his name was Leon, was standing up and he said, Burgraf, I don't like you. And he was like, okay. Um, and from that day on, he determined that as much as he could, he was going to make my life miserable. And he would raid my locker. He would come bully. And all my friends were afraid of him as well. Now, he wasn't any bigger than us, but he was real strong. In fact, all of his high school years, every year he went and placed in the top few in the wrestling categories. He was in the lower, lower weight level, but he was tough. 
And so they became a, it became a real difficult spot there at school. It was like, I, I don't know this guy. This guy is picking on me. My friends that I hung around with, they were all terrified, so nobody was going to stand against him because he and his cronies, they would start beating them up if somebody was, was the thought. And so that went on for about a week, and it was horrible. And I remember just trying to avoid this guy and plan that, you know, I'd eat in in quicker way or a slower way so as to stay closer to the faculty and stay away from him. And then one day, another guy out of the D group, his name was Bruce, (coughs) all of a sudden, he calls to me in the hallway, Burgraf, Burgraf, I want to talk to you. Now, Bruce wasn't small. Bruce also was a wrestler, but he was in the heavy class. Bruce was, as a seventh grader, six foot by six foot by six foot, every direction. And he was just a mean-looking fella. Just, you know, he just had that, that facial demeanor that he was always looking grumpy, always looking angry. And now I'm thinking, oh, there's two of them out of the same class. And they, you know, for sure, I'm going to die. And so I determined that I'd stay away from, from Bruce as well. And so if it meant that I needed to skip school sometimes, I skipped school in those first couple weeks. If it meant that I had to hide out in my locker, I hid out my, I could squeeze in at that point. Uh, if it meant that, that I avoided lunch altogether, I avoided lunch. And so this was going on. This was, this was an off time. I even decided to get away from, from Bruce by joining the photo, photo club. The, uh, that way, if I, the, you know, getting involved with the yearbook and the photo thing, I could get a special pass to get out early so as to take pictures of people in the hallway. And I use that as my excuse to get to the cla- next classroom where a teacher was to avoid those guys. Spent uh, several lunches in the dark room uh, just hiding from those guys. But then one day, one day Bruce came up and he caught me when I wasn't looking. Burgraf, I need to talk to you. And all I could see, my, my entire 13 years flashed before my life, my eyes. And the air, Bruce is going to kill me. I don't know why. I don't know what was going on. He says, Mr. Zahn said you would help me with my math. I have a free study hall, seventh hour. You do too, he said. I'll meet you in the library. Oh, he, was, he wasn't going to kill me. He needed me. So I met him and helped him out with his math. Found out he was a nice guy. We became friends. And then the next day or two after that, it really paid off. I'm walking around outside, not watching, and all of a sudden, here comes Leon. And Leon is headed straight towards me. He comes up, and he starts threatening to beat me up. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see Big Bruce come, literally pick Leon off the ground, and say, if you pick on my friend Burgraff, I'm going to break both your legs. I never had a problem with Leon after that. He stayed away from me, because he was afraid of Bruce. <laughs> I thought about that afterwards. How foolish. I was hiding and dodging from Bruce, who was the only one in the class who could have helped me out. Some of you are hiding and dodging from Jesus Christ, but he's the only one who can help you out. He's the only one who can forgive you, who can restore you. And if you are a faithful believer who has fallen, take heart. Fallen believers can be forgiven. Take heart with another thought. Forgiven believers, once they have come to the Lord and they've confessed and they've said honestly, forgiven believers can become fruitful. You go to the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 2, you have weeks later the believers standing there and Pentecost, the Holy Ghost coming upon them, and all of a sudden here you have the spokesman Peter preaching the word of God, and 3,000 folk get saved. What a way to be used by Christ. Just weeks before, he had fallen flat, and now Christ is using him. My friend, Christ can use you. If you become a fallen believer, return to Christ. Run to him. He will forgive you. And once he has forgiven you, he can give you some type of opportunity to become fruitful. Remember these thoughts. Keep them in mind. But I want to add to this. This this is an important cycle that kind of keeps going. Fruitful believers could fall again. It happened in Peter's life later on where he slipped, not as bad, but he slipped again in Galatians 2. 
Those fallen believers can be forgiven again. Those who have been forgiven again, they can become fruitful again. Never, ever, ever quit on coming back to Christ. On coming and asking Him to forgive you. So what do we take out of this message? Let me just wrap it up quickly. Number one, do not, do not conclude that because Christ is willing to forgive, you can abuse His grace. You and I dare not ever do that. Dare not say, I have the liberty to live and do whatever I want because he'll always forgive me and restore me. That type of attitude is ungodly. And that type of attitude will keep you from being fully restored. But remember this. If you find yourselves right now being one of those who hasn't been so careful... You're thinking you're the exception in prayer. You're thinking you can serve in the flesh and not even being filled by the Spirit. You're putting yourself in bad spots. You need to stop. You need to get back to being close to the Lord. You need to cut off that trend and pray. Go by the Word of God. Do what He has said. You need to remember that Jesus Christ will forgive you if you have fallen, that He is ready and willing to forgive if you confess. If you're here this morning and you're listening to this, you need to remember that if you draw an eye to the Lord, He will draw an eye to you. He will have something you can do, some way you can serve. You just need to get back to Him and get close to Him. <laughs> Story went out about a couple, older couple, sitting in their car. And probably it makes more sense if I date this a little bit, when cars used to have, even in the front seat, solid seats that went all the way across instead of bucket seats or individual captain's chairs. This was the day when they could have full bench seats all the way across the front as well. And this couple, older couple, come up and they see a young couple right in front of them at the stoplight. Can't see a whole lot other than as traffic is coming this direction. They see silhouetted with the lights on and being evening. They see that that couple in front is a young couple and they are snuggled oh so close. It almost looks like one head behind the steering wheel. And then the older couple sitting behind, the wife who is all the way over on her side of the car, says to her husband who's driving, she says, oh look it, isn't that sweet? Isn't that cute? He goes, what? She says, Look at how she just snuggles up so close to him and that's so cute, that's so romantic. And the old woman turns to the husband and says, to add to it, she says, why don't we do that anymore? Quick as he could, he turned to her and she said, I haven't moved. How true. He was still in the same spot. It was she that had gone to the other side. You know what? Christ hasn't moved. If you don't feel as close to Christ right now, it's not his fault. He's still there. You draw nigh to him, and he will draw nigh to you. Father, I thank you for these folk listening. I thank you for this simple lesson. I pray that you would help us, by the grace of God, to be individuals who would not be defeated, who would stay solid as a rock, who would serve you to the best of our abilities, and when we start to stray, when we start to wander, that as you rebuke us, as you convict us, we would be quick to respond. Help us by your grace to do that. Help those who are listening today, if some need to repent, that they would do that without hesitation. They need to restore practices of prayer and listening to the word and caution and not putting themselves in vulnerable spots. Help them to have the boldness to follow through. Thank you for this simple example of Peter. Help us to walk close to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If we can be of assistance to you in your spiritual life, feel free to contact us at your convenience.